committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the fifth in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess at any time. There is a quorum present. We will proceed today in the same fashion as our other hearings. I'll make an opening statement, and then Ranking Member Nunes will have the opportunity to make a statement. And we will turn to our witness for an opening statement, and then to questions. For audience members, we welcome you and respect your interest in being here. In turn, we ask for your respect as we proceed with today's hearing. It is the intention of the committee to proceed without disruptions. As chairman, I'll make all necessary and appropriate steps to maintain order and to ensure the committee is run in accordance with House Rules and House Resolution 660. With that, I now recognize myself to give an opening statement in the impeachment inquiry into Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States. This morning, we will hear from Gordon Sondland, the American Ambassador to the European Union. We are here today as part of the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry because President Donald Trump sought to condition military aid to Ukraine in an Oval Office meeting with the new Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in exchange for politically motivated investigations that Trump believed would help his re-election campaign. The first investigation was of a discredited conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, was responsible for interfering in the 2016 election. The second investigation that Trump demanded into, was into a political rival that he apparently feared most, Joe Biden. Trump sought to weaken Biden and to refute the fact that his own election campaign in 2016 had been helped by a Russian hacking and dumping operation and Russian social media campaign directed by Vladimir Putin to help Trump. Trump's scheme undermined military and diplomatic support for a key ally and undercut U.S. anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. Trump put his personal and political interests above those of the United States. As Ambassador Sondland would later tell career Foreign Service Officer David Holmes immediately after speaking to the President, Trump did not give a expletive about Ukraine. He cares about big stuff that benefits him, like the Biden investigations that Rudy Giuliani was pushing. Ambassador Sondland was a skilled dealmaker, but in trying to satisfy a directive from the President, found himself increasingly embroiled in an effort to press the new Ukrainian president that deviated sharply from the norm in both terms of policy and process. In February, Ambassador Sondland traveled to Ukraine on his first official trip to that country. While in Kyiv, he met with then U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, and found her to be an excellent diplomat with a deep command of Ukrainian internal dynamics. On April 21st, Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine and spoke to President Trump who congratulated him and said he would look into attending Zelensky's inauguration, but pledged to send someone at a very, very high level. Between the time of that call and the inaugural on May 20, Trump's attitude towards Ukraine hardened. On May 13th, the President ordered Vice President Mike Pence not to attend Zelensky's inauguration, opting instead to dispatch the self-dubbed Three Amigos, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Ambassador Sondland, and Ambassador Kurt Volker, the Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations. After returning from the inauguration, members of the U.S. delegation briefed President Trump on their encouraging first interactions with the new Ukrainian administration. They urged the President to meet with Zelensky, but the President's reaction was decidedly hostile. The President's order was clear, 
however, talk with Rudy. During this meeting, Ambassador Sondland first became aware of what Giuliani and the President were really interested in. This whole thing was sort of a continuum, he testified at his deposition, starting at, May, at the May 23rd meeting, ending up at the end of the line when the transcript of the call came out. It was a continuum, he would explain, that became more insidious over time. The three amigos were disappointed with Trump's directive to engage Giuliani, but vowed to press ahead. Ambassador Sondland testified, we could abandon the goal of a White House meeting for President Zelensky, which the group deemed crucial for U.S.-Ukrainian relations, or we could do as President Trump directed and talk to Mr. Giuliani to address the President's concerns. We chose the latter path. In the coming weeks, Ambassador Sondland got more clearly involved in Ukraine policymaking, starting with the June 4 U.S. mission to the EU Independence Day event in Brussels one month early. Secretary Perry, Ulbricht Breckbull, and the State, Department Counselor, the State Department Counselor and Sondland met with President Zelensky, whom Sondland had invited personally on the margins of the event. On June 10, 2019, Secretary Perry organized a conference call with Sondland, then National Security Advisor John Bolton, Volker, and others. They reviewed Ukraine's strategy with Bolton and decided that Perry, Sondland, and Volker would assist Ambassador Bill Taylor the new acting ambassador in Kyiv on Ukraine, and discussed Trump's desire for Rudy Giuliani to be somehow involved. At the end of the call, according to Sondland, we all felt very comfortable with the strategy moving forward. Two weeks later, on June 27th, Ambassador Sondland called Taylor to say that, quote, Zelensky needed to make clear to President Trump that he was not standing in the way of investigations. On July 10th, Ambassador Sondland and other U.S. officials met at the White House with a group of U.S. and Ukrainian officials. Participants in the meeting have told us that Ambassador Sondland invoked acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and said that the White House meeting sought by the Ukrainian president with Trump would happen only if Ukraine undertook certain investigations. National Security Advisor Bolton abruptly ended the meeting upon hearing this. Undeterred, Sondland brought the Ukrainian delegation downstairs to another part of the White House and was more explicit. According to witnesses, Ukraine needed to investigate the Bidens or Burisma and the 2016 election interference if they wanted to get a meeting at all. Following this meeting in July, Bolton said that he would not be part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up on this. Sondland continued to press for a meeting, but he and others were willing to settle for a phone call as an intermediate step. On July 21, Taylor texted Sondland that, quote, President Zelensky is sensitive about Ukraine being taken seriously, not merely as an instrument of Washington domestic re-election politics. Sondland responded, absolutely. But we need to get the conversation started and the relationship built, irrespective of the pretext, so that Zelensky and Trump could meet and all of this will be fixed. On July 25th, the day of the Trump-Zelensky call, Volker had lunch in Kyiv with a senior aide to Ukrainian President Zelensky and later texted the aide to say that he'd heard from the White House, assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate, get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down date for a visit to Washington. Good luck. <clears throat> Ambassador Sondland spoke to President Trump a few minutes before the call was placed, but was not on the call. 
During that now infamous phone call with Zelensky, Trump responded to the Ukrainian expression of appreciation for U.S. defense support and request to buy more Javelin anti-tank missiles by saying, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Trump asked Zelensky to investigate the discredited 2016 conspiracy theory, and even more ominously, look into the Bidens. Neither had been part of the official preparatory material for the call, but they were in Donald Trump's personal interest and the interests of his re-election campaign. And the Ukrainian president knew about both in advance, in part because of Ambassador Volker and Ambassador Sondland's efforts to make him aware of what the president was demanding. Around this time, Ambassador Sondland became aware of the suspension of security assistance to Ukraine, which had been announced on a secure interagency video conference on July 18th, telling us that it was extremely odd that nobody involved in making and implementing policy towards Ukraine knew why the aid had been put on hold. During August, Sondland participated in conference calls and text messages with Volker and Giuliani and said that the gist of every call was what was going to go in the press statement. In an August 9 text message with Volker, Sondland stated, I think POTUS really wants the deliverable, which was, according to Sondland, a deliverable public statement that President Trump wanted to see or hear before a White House meeting could happen. On September 1, Ambassador Sondland participated in Vice President Pence's bilateral meeting with Zelensky in Warsaw, during which Zelensky raised the suspended security assistance. Following that meeting, Sondland approached the senior Ukrainian official to tell him that he believed what could help them move the aid was if the Ukrainian prosecutor general would go to the mic and announce that he was opening the Burisma investigation. Sondland told Taylor that he had made a mistake by telling the Ukrainians that an Oval Office meeting was dependent on a public announcement of investigations. In fact, everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. But even the announcement by the Prosecutor General would not satisfy the President. On September 7, Sondland spoke to the President and told Tim Morrison and Bill Taylor about the call shortly thereafter. The President said that although this was not a quid pro quo, if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. Moreover, an announcement by the Prosecutor General would not be enough. President Zelensky must personally Months announced personally that he would open the investigations. Sondland told Taylor that President Trump is a businessman. When a businessman is about to sign a check to someone who owes him something, he said the businessman asked that person to pay up before signing the check. The check referred to here was the U.S. military assistance to Ukraine, and Ukraine had to pay up with investigations. Throughout early September, Volker and Sondland sought to close the deal on an agreement that Zelensky would announce investigations. After Taylor texted Sondland on September 9, 2019, that I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. 16 days later, the transcript of the July 25th call was made public and the American people learned the truth of how our president tried to take advantage of a vulnerable ally. Now it is up to Congress, as the people's representatives, to determine what response is appropriate. If the President abused his power and invited foreign interference in our elections, if he sought to condition, coerce, extort, or bribe an ally into conducting investigations to aid his re-election campaign, and did so by withholding official acts, a White House meeting, or hundreds of millions of dollars of needed military aid, it will be up to us to decide 
whether those acts are compatible with the office of the presidency. Finally, I want to say a word about the President and Secretary Pompeo's obstruction of this investigation. We have not received a single document from the State Department, and as Ambassador Sondland's opening statement today will make clear, those documents bear directly on this investigation and this impeachment inquiry. I think we know now, based on a sample of the documents attached to Ambassador Sondland's statement, that the knowledge of this scheme was far and wide and included, among others, Secretary of State Pompeo, as well as the Vice President. We can see why Secretary Pompeo and President Trump have made such a concerted and across-the-board effort to obstruct this investigation and this impeachment inquiry. And I will just say this, they do so at their own peril. I remind the President that Article 3 of the impeachment articles drafted against President Nixon was his refusal to obey the subpoenas of Congress. And with that, I recognize Ranking Member Nunes for any remarks that he would wish to make. Thank the gentleman, as we learned last night. Story time last night, we get story time first thing this morning. Ambassador Sondland, welcome. Glad you're here. Well, I'm really not glad you're here, but welcome to the fifth day of this circus. As I've noticed, noticed, noted before, the Democrats on this committee spent three years accusing President Trump of being a Russian agent. In March 2018, after a year-long investigation, Intelligence Committee Republicans issued a 240-page report describing in detail how the Russians meddled in the 2016 elections and making specific recommendations to improve our election security. Denouncing the report as a whitewash and accusing Republicans of subverting the investigation, the Democrats issued their own report, focusing on their now debunked conspiracy theory that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to hack the elections. Notably, the Democrats vowed at the time to present a further, quote, comprehensive report, unquote, after they finished their investigation into Trump's treasonous collusion with Russia. For some completely inexplicable reason, after the implosion of their Russia hoax, the Democrats failed to issue that comprehensive report. We're still waiting. This episode shows how the Democrats have exploited the Intelligence Committee for political purposes for three years, culminating in these impeachment hearings and their mania to attack the president. No conspiracy theory is too outlandish for the Democrats. Time and time again, they floated the possibility of some far-fetched malfeasance by Trump, declared the dire need to investigate it, and then suddenly dropped the issue and moved on to their next asinine theory. A sampling of their accusations and insinuations includes these. Trump is a longtime Russian agent, as described in the Steele dossier. The Russians gave Trump advance access to emails stolen by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. The Trump campaign based some of its activities on these stolen documents. Trump received nefarious materials from the Russians through a Trump campaign aide. 
Trump laundered Russian money through real estate deals. Trump was blackmailed by Russia through his financial exposure with Deutsche Bank. Trump had a diabolical plan to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Trump changed the Republican National Committee platform to hurt Ukraine and benefit Russia. The Russians laundered money through the NRA for the Trump campaign. Trump's son-in-law lied about his Russian contacts while obtaining his security clearance. It's a long list of charges, all false. And I could go on and on and on, but I'll spare you for these moments. Clearly, these ludicrous accusations don't reflect committee members who are honestly searching for the truth. They are the actions of partisan extremists who hijacked the Intelligence Committee, transformed it into the Impeachment Committee, abandoned its core oversight functions, and turned it into a beachhead for ousting an elected president from office. You have to keep that history in mind as you consider the Democrats' latest catalog of supposed Trump outrages. Granted, a friendly call with the Ukrainian president wouldn't seem to rise to the same level as being a Russian agent, but the Democrats were running out of time. If they waited any longer, their impeachment circus would intervene with their own candidates' 2020 campaigns. So you have to give them points for creativity in selling this absurdity as an impeachable offense. All this explains why the Democrats have gathered zero Republican support in the House of Representatives for their impeachment crusade. In fact, the vote we held was a bipartisan vote against this impeachment inquiry. Speaker Pelosi, Chairman Schiff, and Chairman Nadler, the key figures behind this impeachment crusade, all proclaimed that impeachment is so damaging to the country that it can only proceed with bipartisan support. Are those de declarations suddenly no longer true? Did impeachment become less divisive? Of course not. They know exactly what kind of damage they're inflicting on this nation, but they've passed the point of no return. After three years of preparation work, much of it spearheaded by the Democrats on this committee, using all the tools of Congress to accuse, investigate, indict, and smear the president, they stoked a frenzy amongst their most fanatical supporters that they can no longer control. Ambassador Sondland, you are here today to be smeared. But you'll make it through it. And I appreciate your service to this country, and I'm sorry that you've had to go through this. In closing, Democrats have zeroed in on an anonymous whistleblower complaint that was cooked up in cooperation with the Democrats on this very committee. They lied to the American people about that cooperation and refused to let us question the whistleblower to discover the truth. Meanwhile, the Democrats lash out against anyone who questions or casts doubt on this spectacle. When Ukrainian President Zelensky denies anything improper happened on the phone call. The Democrats say that he's a liar. When journalists report on Ukraine election meddling and Hunter Biden's position on the board of corrupt Ukrainian companies, 
The Democrats label them conspiracy theorists. When the Democrats can't get any traction for their allegations of quid pro quo, they move the goalposts and accuse the president of extortion, then bribery, and at last resort, obstruction of justice. The American people sent us to Washington to solve problems, not to wage scorched earth political warfare against the other party. This impeachment is not helping the American people. It's not a legitimate use of taxpayer dollars and it's definitely not improving our national security. Finally, the Democrats' fake outrage that President Trump used his own channel to communicate with Ukraine. I'll remind my friends on the other side of the aisle that our first president, George Washington, directed his own diplomatic channels to secure a treaty with Great Britain. If my Democratic colleagues were around in 1794, they'd probably want to impeach him, too. Mr. Chairman, this morning we have transmitted to you a letter exercising our rights under HRS 660 to subpoena documents and witnesses. We take this step because you have failed to ensure fairness and objectivity in this inquiry. As such, we need to subpoena Hunter Biden and the whistleblower for closed-door depositions, as well as relevant documents from the DNC, Hunter Biden's firm, Rosemont Zeneca, and the whistleblower. In the interest of some basic level of fairness, we expect you to concur with these subpoenas. And I'll submit that letter for the record and yield back the balance of my time. I thank the gentleman. We are joined this afternoon by Ambassador Gordon Sondland. I'm sorry, this uh, morning. It was a long day yesterday. Gordon Sondland is the U.S. Representative to the European Union with the rank of Ambassador. Before joining the State Department, Ambassador Sondland was the founder and CEO of Providence Hotels, a national owner and operator of full-service hotels. Also prior to his government service, Ambassador Sondland was engaged in charitable enterprises. Two final points before our witness is sworn. First, de witness depositions as part of this inquiry were, in unclassified, uh, were unclassified in nature, and all open hearings will also be held at the unclassified level. Any information that may touch on classified information will be addressed separately. Second, Congress will not tolerate any reprisal, threat of reprisal, or attempt to retaliate against any U.S. government official for testifying before Congress, including you or any of your colleagues. If you would please rise and raise your right hand, I will begin by swearing you in. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you are about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Let the record show the witness has answered in the affirmative. Thank you, and please be seated. The microphone is sensitive, so please speak directly into it. Without objection, your written statement will be made part of the record, and with that, Ambassador Sondland, you are now recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Ranking Member Nunes. I appreciate the opportunity to speak again to the members of this committee. <coughs> First, let me offer my thanks to the men and women of the U.S. Department of State 
who have committed their professional lives to support the foreign policy work of the United States. In particular, I want to thank my staff at the U.S. Mission to the European Union. Your integrity, dedication, and hard work, often performed without public acclaim or recognition, serve as a shining example of true public service. And I am personally grateful to work beside you each and every day. It is my honor to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union. The U.S. mission to the EU is the direct link between the United States and the European Union and its members. America's longest standing allies and one of the largest economic blocs in the world. Every day, I work to support a strong, united, and peaceful Europe. Strengthening our ties with Europe serves both American and European goals as we together promote political stability and economic prosperity around the world. I expect that few Americans have heard my name before these events, so before I begin my substantive testimony, please let me share some of my personal background. My parents fled Europe during the Holocaust. Escaping the atrocities of that time, my parents left Germany for Uruguay and then, in 1953, emigrated to Seattle, Washington, where I was born and raised. Like so many immigrants, my family was eager for freedom and hungry for opportunity. They raised my sister and me to be humble, hardworking, and patriotic, and I am forever grateful for the sacrifices they made on our behalf. Public service has always been important to me. As a lifelong Republican, I have contributed to initiatives of both Republican and Democratic administrations. In 2003, I served as a member of the transition team for Oregon Democratic Governor Ted Kulingowski. Governor Kulingowski also appointed me to serve on various statewide boards. In 2007, President George W. Bush appointed me as a member of the Commission on White House Fellows. I worked with President Bush on charitable events for his Foundation's Military Service Initiative, and I also worked briefly with former Vice President Joe Biden's office in connection with the Vice President's nationwide anti-cancer initiative at a local Northwest hospital. And of course, the highest honor in my public life came when President Trump asked me to serve as the United States Ambassador to the European Union. The Senate confirmed me as an ambassador on a bipartisan voice vote, and I assumed the role in Brussels on July 9, 2018. Although today is my first public testimony on the Ukraine matters, this is not my first time cooperating with this committee. As you know, I've already provided 10 hours of deposition testimony, and I did so despite directives from the White House and the State Department that I refuse to appear, as many others have done. I agreed to testify because I respect the gravity of the moment, and I believe I have an obligation to account fully for my role in these events. But I also must acknowledge that this process has been challenging. And in many respects, 
less than fair. I have not had access to all of my phone records, State Department emails, and many, many other State Department documents. And I was told I could not work with my EU staff to pull together the relevant files and information. Having access to the State Department materials would have been very helpful to me in trying to reconstruct with whom I spoke and met and when and what was said. As ambassador, I've had hundreds of meetings and calls with individuals, but I'm not a note taker or a memo writer, never have been. My job requires that I speak with heads of state, senior government officials, members of the cabinet, the president, almost each and every day. Talking with foreign leaders might be memorable to some people but this is my job. I do it all the time. My lawyers and I have made multiple requests to the State Department and the White House for these materials. Yet, these materials were not provided to me. And they have also refused to share these materials with this committee. These documents are not classified and in fairness, and in fairness should have been made available. In the absence of these materials, my memory admittedly has not been perfect. And I have no doubt that a more fair, open, and orderly process of allowing me to read the State Department records and other materials would have made this process far more transparent. I don't intend to repeat my prior opening statement or attempt to summarize 10 hours of previous deposition testimony. However, a few critical points have been obscured by noise over the last few days and weeks, and I'm worried that the bigger picture is being ignored. So let me make a few key points. First, Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and I worked with Mr. Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine matters at the express direction of the President of the United States. We did not want to work with Mr. Giuliani. Simply put, we were playing the hand we were dealt. We all understood that if we refused to work with Mr. Giuliani, we would lose a very important opportunity to cement relations between the United States and Ukraine. So we followed the President's orders. Second, Although we disagreed with the need to involve Mr. Giuliani, at the time we did not believe that his role was improper. As I previously testified, if I had known of all of Mr. Giuliani's dealings or his associations with individuals, some of whom are now under criminal indictment, I personally would not have acquiesced to his participation. Still, Given what we knew at the time, what we were asked to do did not appear to be wrong. Third, let me say, precisely because we did not think that we were engaging in improper behavior, we made every effort to ensure that the relevant decision makers at the National Security Council and the State Department knew the important details of our efforts. 
the suggestion that we were engaged in some irregular or rogue diplomacy is absolutely false. I have now identified certain State Department emails and messages that provide contemporaneous support for my view. These emails show that the leadership of the State Department, the National Security Council, and the White House were all informed about the Ukraine efforts from May 23, 2019 until the security aid was released on September 11, 2019. I will quote from some of those messages with you shortly. Fourth, as I testified previously, as I testified previously, Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. Mr. Giuliani demanded that Ukraine make a public statement announcing the investigations of the 2016 election DNC server and Burisma. Mr. Giuliani was expressing the desires of the President of the United States, and we knew these investigations were important to the President. Fifth, in July and August of 2019, we learned that the White House had also suspended security aid to Ukraine. I was adamantly opposed to any suspension of aid. I was adamantly, adamantly opposed to any suspension of aid, as the Ukrainians needed those funds to fight against Russian aggression. I tried diligently to ask why the aid was suspended, but I never received a clear answer. Still haven't to this day. In the absence of any credible explanation for the suspension of aid, I later came to believe that the resumption of security aid would not occur until there was a public statement from Ukraine committing to the investigations of the 2016 elections and Burisma, as Mr. Giuliani had demanded. I shared concerns of the potential quid pro quo regarding the security aid with Senator Ron Johnson, and I also shared my concerns with the Ukrainians. Finally, at all times, I was acting in good faith. I was acting in good faith. As a presidential appointee, I followed the directions of the president. We worked with Mr. Giuliani because the president directed us to do so. We had no desire to set any conditions. We had no desire to set any conditions on the Ukrainians. Indeed, my own personal view, which I shared repeatedly with others, was that the White House and security, security assistance should have proceeded without preconditions of any kind. We were working to overcome the problems given the facts as they existed. Our only interest, and my only interest, was to advance long-standing U.S. policy and to support Ukraine's fragile democracy. Now let me provide additional details specifically about Ukraine and my involvement. First, my very first days as ambassador to the EU 
which was starting back in July of 2018, Ukraine has featured prominently in my broader portfolio. Ukraine's political and economic development are critical to the long-standing and long-lasting stability of Europe. Moreover, the conflict in eastern Ukraine and Crimea remains one of the most significant security crises for Europe and the United States. Our efforts to counterbalance an aggressive Russia depend in substantial part on a strong Ukraine. On April 21, 2019, Vladimir Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine in, in, in an historic election. With the express support of Secretary Pompeo, I attended President Zelensky's inauguration on May 20th as part of the U.S. delegation, which was led by Energy Secretary Rick Perry. The U.S. delegation also included Senator Johnson, Ukraine Special Envoy Volker, and Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman of the National Security Council. My attendance at President Zelensky's inauguration was not my first involvement with Ukraine. As I testified previously, just four days after assuming my post as ambassador in July of 2018, I received an official delegation from the government of then-Ukraine President Petro Poroshenko. The meeting took place at the U.S. mission in Brussels and was prearranged by my career EU mission staff. And I've had several meetings since then in Brussels. Later, in February of 2019, I worked well with U.S. Ambassador Marie Ivanovich in making my first official visit to Ukraine for a U.S. Navy visit to the strategic Black Sea port of Odessa. And the reason I raise these prior Ukraine activities, the meetings in Brussels, my visit to Odessa, is to emphasize that Ukraine has been a part of my portfolio from my very first days as the U.S. Ambassador. Any claim that I somehow muscled my way into the Ukraine relationship is simply false. During the Zelensky inauguration on May 20th, the U.S. delegation developed a very positive view of the Ukraine government. We were impressed by President Zelensky's desire to promote a stronger relationship with the United States. We admired his commitment to reform, and we were excited about the possibility of Ukraine making the changes necessary to support a greater Western economic investment. And we were excited that Ukraine might, after years and years of lip service, finally get serious about addressing its own well-known corruption problems. With that enthusiasm, we returned to the White House on May 23rd to brief President Trump. We advised the President of the strategic importance of Ukraine and the value of strengthening the relationship with President Zelensky. To support this reformer, we asked the White House for two things. First, a working phone call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky, and second, a working Oval Office visit. In our view, both were vital to cementing the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, demonstrating support for Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression, 
and advancing broader U.S. foreign policy interests. Unfortunately, President Trump was skeptical. He expressed concerns that the Ukrainian government was not serious about reform, and he even mentioned that Ukraine tried to take him down in the last election. In response to our persistent efforts in that meeting to change his views, President Trump directed us to, quote, talk with Rudy. We understood that talk with Rudy meant talk with Mr. Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. Let me say again, we weren't happy with the president's directive to talk with Rudy. We did not want to involve Mr. Giuliani. I believe then, as I do now, that the men and women of the State Department, not the president's personal lawyer, should take responsibility for Ukraine matters. Nonetheless, based on the president's direction, we were faced with a choice. We could abandon the efforts to schedule the White House phone call and a White House visit between Presidents Trump and Zelensky, which was unquestionably in our foreign policy interest, or we could do as President Trump had directed and talk with Rudy. We chose the latter course, not because we liked it, but because it was the only constructive path open to us. Over the course of the next several months, Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and I were in communication with Mr. Giuliani. Secretary Perry volunteered to make the initial calls with Mr. Giuliani, given their prior relationship. Ambassador Volker made several of the early calls and generally informed us of what was discussed. I first communicated with Mr. Giuliani in early August, several months later. Mr. Giuliani emphasized that the president wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing Ukraine to look into the corruption issues. Mr. Giuliani specifically mentioned the 2016 election, including the DNC server, and Burisma as two topics of importance to the president. We kept the leadership of the State Department and the NSC informed of our activities. And that included communications with Secretary of State Pompeo, his counselor, Ulrich Brechtbull, his executive secretary, Lisa Kenna, and also communications with Ambassador Bolton, Dr. Hill, Mr. Morrison, and their staff at the NSC. They knew what we were doing and why. On July 10, 2019, senior Ukrainian national security officials met with Ambassador Bolton, Ambassador Volker, Dr. Hill, Secretary Perry, myself, and several others in Washington, D.C. During that meeting, we all discussed the importance of the two action items I identified earlier. One, a working phone call, and two, a White House meeting between Presidents Trump and Zelensky. From my perspective, the July 10th meeting was a positive step toward accomplishing our shared goals. While I am now aware of accounts of the meeting from Dr. Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, their recollections of those events simply don't square with my own, 
or with those of Ambassador Volker or Secretary Perry. I recall mentioning the prerequisite of investigations before any White House call or meeting, but I do not recall any yelling or screaming or abrupt terminations as, as others have said. Instead, after the meeting, Ambassador Bolton walked outside with our group and we all took some great pictures together outside on the White House lawn. More important, those recollections of protests do not square with the documentary record of our interactions with the NSC in the days and weeks that followed. We kept the NSC apprised of our efforts, including specifically our efforts to secure a public statement from the Ukrainians that would satisfy President Trump's concerns. For example, on July 13th, and this is three days after that July 10th meeting, I emailed Tim Morrison, he had just taken over Dr. Hill's post as the NSC Eurasia Director, and I met him that day for the first time. I wrote to Mr. Morrison with these words. The call between Zelensky and POTUS, President of the United States, should happen before 721, which is the parliamentary elections in Ukraine. Sole purpose is for Zelensky to give POTUS assurances of new sheriff in town, corruption ending, unbundling moving forward, and, and I emphasize, any hampered investigations will be allowed to move forward transparently. Goal is for POTUS to invite him to Oval. Volker, Perry, Bolton, and I strongly recommend. Mr. Morrison acknowledged and said thank you, and specifically noted that he was tracking these issues. Again, there was no secret regarding moving forward and the discussion of investigations. Moreover, I've reviewed other State Department documents, some of which are not currently in the public domain, detailing Mr. Giuliani's efforts. For example, on July 10th, the very same day that Ambassador Volker, Secretary Perry, and I were meeting with the Ukraine officials in Washington, Ambassador Taylor received a communication that Mr. Giuliani was still talking with Ukrainian prosecutor Yuri Lutsenko. In WhatsApp messages with Ambassador Volker and I, Ambassador Taylor wrote to us as follows. Just had a meeting with Andre and Vadim, referring to Ukraine Foreign Minister Vadim Prostyko. Taylor said the Ukrainians were, quote, very concerned about what Lutsenko told them, that according to RG, meaning Rudy Giuliani, the Zelensky-POTUS meeting will not happen. Volker responded, good grief, please tell Vadim to let the official U.S. government representatives speak for the U.S. Lutsenko has his own self-interest here. Taylor confirmed that he had communicated that message to the Ukrainians. And he added, I briefed Ulrich this afternoon on this, referring to State Department Counselor Ulrich Brechtbull. Again, everyone's in the loop. Three things are critical about this WhatsApp exchange. 
First, while the Ukrainians were in Washington at the White House, Mr. Giuliani was communicating with the Ukrainians without our knowledge. Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Volker, and I were all surprised by this. Second, Mr. Giuliani was communicating with the reportedly corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor Lutsenko and discussing whether a Zelensky-Trump meeting was going to happen, again without our knowledge. And third, with this alarming news, Ambassador Taylor briefed Ulrich Brechtbull, who is the counselor to Secretary of State Pompeo. And even as late as September 24th of this year, Secretary Pompeo was directing Kurt Volker to speak with Mr. Giuliani. In a WhatsApp message, Kurt Volker told me, in part, spoke with Rudy per guidance from S. S is the State Department's official designator for the secretary. Spoke with Rudy per guidance from S. Look, we tried our best to fix the problem while keeping the State Department and the NSC closely apprised of the challenges we faced. On July 25th, Presidents Trump and Zelensky had their official call. I was not on the call, and I don't think I was invited to be on the call. In fact, I first read the transcript on September 25th, the day it was publicly released. All I had heard at that time was that the call had gone well. Looking back, I find it very odd, very odd, that neither I, nor Ambassador Taylor, nor Ambassador Volker ever received a detailed readout of that call with the Biden references. Now, there are people who say they had concerns about the call, but no one shared any concerns about the call with me at the time, which frankly would have been very helpful to know. On July 26th, Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Volker, and I were all in Kiev to meet with President Zelensky. The timing of that trip immediately after the call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky was entirely, entirely coincidental. The Kiev meetings had been scheduled well before the date that the White House finally fixed the call. During our Kiev meeting, I do not recall President Zelensky discussing the substance of his July 25th call with President Trump. Nor did he discuss any request to investigate Vice President Biden which we all later learned was discussed on the July 25th call. And this is consistent with the reported comments from Ambassadors Volker and Taylor. After the Zelensky meeting, I also met with Zelensky's senior aide, Andre Yermak. I don't recall the specifics of our conversation, but I believe the issue of investigations was probably a part of that agenda or meeting. Also, on July 26, shortly after our Kiev meetings, I spoke by phone with President Trump. The White House, which has finally, finally shared certain call dates and times with my attorneys, confirms this. The call lasted five minutes. I remember I was at a restaurant in Kiev, and I have no reason to doubt that this conversation included the subject of investigations. Again, given Mr. Giuliani's demand that President Zelensky make a public statement about investigations, I knew that investigations were important to President Trump. 
we did not discuss any classified information. Other witnesses have recently shared their recollection of overhearing this call. For the most part, I have no reason to doubt their accounts. It's true that the president speaks loudly at times, and it's also true, I think we primarily discussed ASAP Rocky. It's true that the president likes to use colorful language. Anyone who has met with him at any reasonable amount of time knows this. While I cannot remember the precise details, again, the White House has not allowed me to see any readouts of that call, and the July 26 call did not strike me as significant at the time. Actually, actually, I would have been more surprised if President Trump had not mentioned investigations, particularly given what we were hearing from Mr. Giuliani about the president's concerns. However, I have no recollection of discussing Vice President Biden or his son on that call or after the call ended. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volcker, and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians, and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. Within my State Department emails, there is a July 19th email. This email was sent. This email was sent to Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Perry, Brian McCormick, who is Secretary Perry's Chief of Staff at the time, Ms. Kenna, who is the acting, pardon me, who is the Executive Secretariat for Secretary Pompeo, Chief of Staff Mulvaney, and Mr. Mulvaney's Senior Advisor, Rob Blair. A lot of senior officials. A lot of senior officials. Here is my exact quote from that email. I talked to Zelensky just now. He is prepared to receive POTUS's call. We'll assure him that he intends to run a fully transparent investigation and will turn over every stone. He would greatly appreciate a call prior to Sunday so that he can put out some media about a friendly and productive call, no details, prior to Ukraine election on Sunday. Chief of Staff Mulvaney responded, I asked the NSC to set it up for tomorrow. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Everyone was informed via email on July 19th, days before the presidential call. As I communicated to the team, I told President Zelensky in advance that assurances to run a fully transparent investigation and turn over every stone were necessary in his call with President Trump. 
On July 19th, in a WhatsApp message between Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Volker, and me, Ambassador Vol Volker stated, had breakfast with Rudy this morning, that's Ambassador Volker and Rudy Giuliani, teeing up call with Yermak Monday, that's Senior Advisor Andre Yermak, must have helped. Most important is for Zelensky to say that he will help investigation and address any specific personnel issues, if there are any. On August 10th, the next day, Mr. Yermak texted me, once we have a date, which is a date for the White House meeting, we will call for a press briefing announcing upcoming visit and outlining vision for the reboot of the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, including, among other things, Burisma and election meddling in investigations. This is from Mr. Yermak to me. The following day, August 11th, and this is critical, I sent an email to Councillor Breckbull and Lisa Kenna. Lisa Kenna was frequently used as the pathway to Secretary Pompeo, as sometimes he preferred to receive his emails through her. She would print them out and put them in front of him. With the subject Ukraine, I wrote, Mike, referring to Mike Pompeo, Kurt and I negotiated a statement from Zelensky to be delivered for our review in a day or two. The contents will hopefully make the boss happy enough, the boss being the president, to authorize an invitation. Zelensky plans to have a big presser, press conference, on the openness subject, including specifics next week, all of which referred to the 2016 and the Burisma. Ms. Kenna replied, Gordon, I'll pass to the secretary. Thank you. Again, everyone was in the loop. Curiously, and this was very interesting to me, on August 26th, shortly before his visit to Kiev, Ambassador Bolton's office requested Mr. Giuliani's contact information from me. I sent Ambassador Bolton the information directly. They requested Mr. Giuliani's contact information on August 26th. I was first informed that the White House was withholding security aid to Ukraine during conversations with Ambassador Taylor on July 18th. 2019. However, as I testified before, I was never able to obtain a clear answer regarding the specific reason for the hold, whether it was bureaucratic in nature, which often happens, or reflected some other concern in the interagency process. I never participated in any of the subsequent DOD or DOS review meetings that others have described, so I can't speak to what was discussed in those meetings. Nonetheless, before the September 1st Warsaw meeting, the Ukrainians had become aware that security funds had yet to be dispersed. In the absence of any credible explanation for the hold, 
I came to the conclusion that the aide, like the White House visit, was jeopardized. In preparation for the September 1 Warsaw meeting, I asked Secretary Pompeo whether a face-to-face -face conversation between Trump and Zelensky would help to break the logjam. And this was when President Trump was still intending to travel to Warsaw. Specifically, on August 22nd, I emailed Secretary Pompeo directly, copying Secretariat Kenna. I wrote, and this is my email to Secretary Pompeo, should we block time in Warsaw for a short pull aside for POTUS to meet Zelensky? I would ask Zelensky to look him in the eye and tell him that once Ukraine's new justice folks are in place in mid-September, that Zelensky, he Zelensky, should be able to move forward publicly and with confidence on those issues of importance to POTUS in the U.S. Hopefully that will help break the logjam. The secretary replied, yes. I followed up the next day asking to get 10 to 15 minutes on the Warsaw schedule for this. I said we'd like to know when it's locked so that I can tell Zelensky and brief him. Executive Secretary Kenna replied, I will try for sure. Moreover, given my concerns about the security aid, I have no reason to dispute that portion of Senator Johnson's recent letter in which he recalls conversations he and I had on August 30th. By the end of August, my belief was that if Ukraine did something to demonstrate a serious intention to fight corruption, and specifically addressing Burisma and the 2016, then the hold on military aid would be lifted. There was a September 1st meeting with President Zelensky in Warsaw. Unfortunately, President Trump's attendance at the Warsaw meeting was canceled due to Hurricane Dorian. Vice President Pence attended instead. I mentioned to Vice President Pence before the meetings with the Ukrainians that I had concerns that the delay in aid had become tied to the issue of investigations. I recall mentioning that before the Zelensky meeting. During the actual meeting, President Zelensky raised the issue of security assistance directly with Vice President Pence. And the Vice President said that he would speak to President Trump about it. Based on my previous communication with Secretary Pompeo, I felt comfortable sharing my concerns with Mr. Yermak. It was a very, very brief pull-aside conversation that happened within a few seconds. I told Mr. Yermak that I believed that the resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine took some kind of action on the public statement that we had been discussing for many weeks. As my other State Department colleagues have testified, this security aid was critical to Ukraine's defense and should not have been delayed. I expressed this view to many during this period, but my goal at the time was to do what was necessary to get the aid released, to break the logjam. I believe that the public statement we had been discussing for weeks was essential to advancing that goal. You know, I really regret that the Ukrainians were placed in that predicament, but I do not regret doing what I could to try to break the logjam and to solve the problem. I mentioned at the outset 
that throughout these events, we kept State Department leadership and others apprised of what we were doing. State Department was fully supportive of our engagement in Ukraine efforts and was aware that a commitment to investigations was among the issues we were pursuing. To provide just two examples, on June 5th, the day after the US-EU mission hosted our Independence Day, we did it a month early, Acting Assistant Secretary Phil Reeker sent an email to me, to Secretary Perry, and to others forwarding some positive media coverage of President Zelensky's attendance at our event. Mr. Reeker wrote, and I quote, this headline underscores the importance and timeliness of Zelensky's visit to Brussels and the critical, and the critical, perhaps historic role of the dinner and engagement Gordon coordinated. Thank you for your participation and dedication to this effort. Months later, on September 3rd, I sent Secretary Pompeo an email to express my appreciation for his joining a series of meetings in Brussels following the Warsaw trip. I wrote, Mike, thanks for schlepping to Europe. I think it was really important and the chemistry seems promising. Really appreciate it. Secretary Pompeo replied the next day on Wednesday, September 4th, quote, all good. You're doing great work. Keep banging away. State Department leadership expressed total support for our efforts to engage the new Ukrainian administration. Look, I've never doubted the strategic value of strengthening our alliance with Ukraine. And at all times, at all times, our efforts were in good faith and fully transparent to those tasked with overseeing them. Our efforts were reported and approved. And not once do I recall encountering an objection. It remains an honor to serve the people of the United States as their United States Ambassador to the European Union. I look forward to answering the committee's questions. Thank you. We will now proceed to the first round of questions. As detailed in the memo provided to committee members, there will be 45 minutes of questions conducted by the Chairman or Majority Council, followed by 45 minutes for the Ranking Member or Minority Council. Following that, unless I specify additional equal time for extended questioning, we will proceed under the five-minute rule, and every member will have the chance to ask questions. I recognize myself or, or Majority Council for the first round of questions. Mr. Sondland, there's a lot of new material in your opening statement uh, for us to get through, um, but I want to start with a few top-line questions before passing it over to Mr. Goldman. In your deposition, you testified that you found yourself on a continuum that became more insidious over time. Uh, can you describe what you mean by this continuum of insidiousness? Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, when we left the Oval Office, uh, I believe on May 23rd, uh, the request was very generic for an investigation of corruption in a very vanilla sense and uh, dealing with some of the oligarch problems in Ukraine, which were long-standing problems. And then as time went on, uh, more specific items got added to the menu, uh, including the uh, Burisma and 2016 election 
meddling specifically, the DNC service specifically. And over this, over this continuum, uh, it became more and more difficult to secure the White House meeting because more conditions were being placed on the White House meeting. And then, of course, on July 25th, although you were not privy to the call, another condition was added, that being the investigation of the Bidens. I was not privy to the call, and I did not know that uh, the condition of, of investigating the Bidens was a condition. Correct. You saw that in the call record, correct? It was not in any record I received. But when you did yes, see... Yes, I saw that in September, correct. So under, uh, on this continuum, the uh, beginning of the continuum begins on May 23rd when the President instructs you to talk to Rudy? Correct. Uh, and you understood that as a direction by the President that you needed to satisfy the concerns that Rudy Giuliani would express to you uh, about what the President wanted in Ukraine? Not to me, to the entire group, Volker, Perry and myself, correct. Now, in your opening statement, you confirm that there was a quid pro quo between the White House meeting and the investigations into Burisma and the 2016 election that Giuliani was publicly promoting. Is that right? Correct. And in fact, you say that other senior officials in the State Department and the Chiefs of Staff's office, including Mick Mulvaney, Secretary Pompeo, we're aware of this quid pro quo that in order to get the White House meeting, there were going to have to be these investigations the President wanted. Correct. And those, again, are investigations into 2016 and Burisma slash the Bidens. 2016 Burisma. The Bidens did not come up. But you would ultimately learn that Burisma meant the Bidens when you saw the call record, correct? Of course. Today I know exactly what it means. I didn't know at the time. And then on July 26th, you confirm you did indeed have the conversation with President Trump from a restaurant in Kyiv that David Holmes testified about last week. Is that right? Correct. And you have no, doubt, no reason to doubt Mr. Holmes' recounting of your conversation with the President? Uh, the only part of Mr. Holmes' uh, recounting that I take exception with is I do not recall mentioning the Bidens. That did not enter my mind. It was Burisma in 2016 elections. You have no reason to believe that Mr. Holmes would make that up if that's what he recalls you saying? You have no reason to question that, do you? I, I, I don't recall saying Biden. I never recall saying Biden. But the rest of uh, Mr. Holmes' uh, recollection is consistent with your own? Well, I can't testify as to what Mr. Holmes might or might not have heard through the phone. I don't know how he heard the conversation. Are you familiar with his testimony? Vaguely, yes. And the only exception you take is to the mention of the name Biden. Correct. And I think you said in your testimony this morning that not only uh, is it correct that the president brought up with you investigations on the phone the day after the July 25th call, but you would have been surprised had he not brought that up. Is that right? Right, because we had been hearing about it from Rudy, and we presumed Rudy was getting it from the president. So it seemed like a logical conclusion. Mr. Holmes also testified that you told him President Trump doesn't care about Ukraine. He only cares about big stuff that relates to him personally. Um, I take it from your comment, uh, you don't dispute that part of the conversation. Well, he made that clear in the May 23rd meeting that he was not 
particularly fond of Ukraine, and we had a lot of heavy lifting to do to get him to engage. So you don't dispute that part of Mr. Holmes' recollection? No. In August, when you worked with Rudy Giuliani and a top Ukrainian aide to draft a public statement for President Zelensky to issue that includes the announcement of investigations into Burisma, you understood that was required by President Trump before he would grant a White House meeting to President Zelensky? That's correct. And the Ukrainians understood that as well? I believe they did. Uh, and you informed Secretary Pompeo about that statement as well? I did. Later in August, you told Secretary Pompeo that President Zelensky would be prepared to tell President Trump that his new justice officials would be able to announce matters of interest to the president, which could break the logjam. When you say matters of interest to the president, you mean the investigations that President Trump wanted. Is that right? Correct. Uh, and that involved 2016 and Burisma or the Bidens? 2016 and Burisma. And when you're talking here about breaking the logjam, you're talking about the logjam over the security assistance, correct? I was talking logjam generically because nothing was moving. But that included the security assistance, did it not? Correct. And based on the context of that email, this was not the first time you had discussed these investigations with Secretary Pompeo, was it? No. He was aware of the connections that you were making between the investigations and the White House meeting and security assistance? Yes. Did he ever take issue with you and say, no, that connection is not there or you're wrong? Not that I recall. Now, you mentioned that uh, you also had a conversation with Vice President Pence before his meeting with President Zelensky in Warsaw and that you raised the concern you had as well that the security assistance was being withheld because of the president's desire to get a commitment from Zelensky to pursue these political investigations. What did you say to the vice president? I was in a briefing uh, with several people and I just spoke up and I said, it appears that everything is stalled until this statement gets made, something that words to that effect, uh, and that's what I believe to be the case based on uh, you know, the work that the three of us had been doing, Volker, Perry, and myself, and the vice president nodded like, you know, he, he heard what I said, and that was pretty much it, as I recall. And you understood that the Ukrainians were going to raise the security assistance with the vice president at this meeting? I didn't know what they were going to raise, but they, I, they, in fact, did raise it, Mr. Chairman. Well, it was public by that point that there was a hold on the security assistance, correct? Yeah, but I, I didn't know what they were going to raise. I didn't get a pre-brief from the Ukrainians. Well, you knew certainly they were concerned about the hold on the security assistance, right? They were concerned, obviously. And you wanted to help prepare the vice president for the meeting by letting him know what you thought was responsible for the hold on the security assistance. That's fair. Do you recall anything else the, president, the vice president said other than nodding his head when you made him aware of this fact? No, I, I don't have a readout of that meeting, so I can't remember anything else. Uh, and it was immediately after this meeting between the Vice President and Zelensky that you went to uh, speak with Yermak and you told him similarly that um, in order to release the military assistance, they were going to have to publicly announce these investigations. Yeah, much has been made of that meeting, and it really wasn't a meeting. What happened was everyone got up after the bilateral meeting between President Zelensky and Vice President Pence 
and people do what they normally do. They get up, they mill around, they shake hands, and I don't know if I came over to your Mac or he came over to me, but he said, you know, what's going on here? And I said, I don't know. It might all be tied together now. I have no, you know, I have no idea. I was presuming that it was, but it was a very short conversation. Well, in that short conversation, as you would later relay to Mr. Morrison and Ambassador Taylor, uh, you informed Mr. Yermak that they would need to invest, announce these investigations in order to get the aid, did you not? Well, Mr. Yermak was already working on those investigations, or on the uh, statement about the investigations. And you confirmed for him that he needed to get it done if they were going to get the military aid? I likely did. Mr. Morrison and Ambassador Taylor have also related a conversation you had with the President following the Warsaw meeting, in which the President relayed to you uh, that there was no quid pro quo, but nevertheless, unless Zelensky went to the mic uh, and announced these investigations, they would be a stalemate over the aid. Is that correct? That's correct. And that was an accurate reflection of your discussion with the President? Well, that email was not artfully written. I'm the first to admit. What I was trying to convey to Ambassador Taylor after his frantic emails to me and to others about the security assistance, which by the way, I agreed with him. I thought it was a very bad idea to hold that money. I finally called the President. I believe it was on the 9th of September. I can't find the records and they won't provide them to me. But I believe I just asked him an open-ended question, Mr. Chairman. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories and this and that. What do you want? And it was a very short, abrupt conversation. He was not in a good mood. And he just said, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Something to that effect. So. I typed out a text to Ambassador Taylor, and my reason for telling him this was not to defend what the President was saying, not to opine on whether the President was being truthful or untruthful, but simply to relay, I've gone as far as I can go. This is the final word that I heard from the President of the United States. If you're still concerned, you, Ambassador Taylor, are still concerned, please get a hold of the Secretary. Maybe he can help. I'm not asking about your text message. I'm asking about your conversations with Mr. Morrison and Ambassador Taylor after you spoke with the President, either in that call or in a different call. I'm confused, Mr. Chairman. Which conversations with Mr. Morrison and Mr. Taylor? Well, Mr. Morrison testified that you related a conversation you had with the President in which the President told you no quid pro quo, but President Zelensky must go to a microphone and announce these investigations, and that he should want to. Uh, similarly, you told Ambassador Taylor that while the President said no quid pro quo, unless Zelensky announced these investigations, they would be at a stalemate, presumably a stalemate over the military assistance. Do you have any reason to question those conversations that Mr. Morrison and Ambassador Taylor took notes about? Well, I think it's tied to my text, Mr. Chairman, because in my text, I think I said something to the effect that um, he wants Zelensky to do what he ran on, I believe, is transparency, et cetera, et cetera, which was my clumsy way of saying he wanted, he wanted these announcements to be made. Again, Ambassador, I'm not asking about your text message. I'm asking about 
what you relayed to Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Morrison about your conversation with the President. Do you have any reason to question their recollection of what you told them? All I can say is that uh, I expressed what I told or what the President told me in that text. And if I had relayed anything other than what was in that text, I don't recall. You don't recall? I don't recall. You have no reason to question Ambassador Taylor or Mr. Morrison of what they wrote in their notes about your conversation with them. Could you kindly repeat what they wrote? I'll have Mr. Goldman go through that with you. That'd be great. Well, let me get to the very the top line here, Ambassador Sondland. Okay. You've testified that the White House meeting that President Zelensky desperately wanted, and that was very important to President Zelensky, was it not? Absolutely. You've testified that that meeting was conditioned, was a quid pro quo for what the President wanted, these two investigations. Is that right? Correct. And that everybody knew it? Correct. Now, that White House meeting was going to be an official meeting between the two Presidents, correct? Presumably. It would be an Oval Office meeting, hopefully? A working meeting, yes. A working meeting. So an official act, yeah. correct? And in order to perform that official act, Donald Trump wanted these two investigations that would help his reelection campaign, correct? I can't characterize why he wanted them. All I can tell you is this is what we heard from Mr. Giuliani. But he had, he had to get those two investigations if that official act was going to take place, correct? He had to announce the investigations. He didn't actually have to do them, as I understood it. Okay. President Zelensky had to announce the two investigations the president wanted, make a public announcement, correct? Correct. And those were of great value to the president. He was quite insistent upon them, and his attorney was insistent upon them? I don't want to characterize whether they are value or not value. Again, through Mr. Giuliani, we were led to believe that that's what he wanted. Well, and you said that Mr. Giuliani was acting at the president's demand, correct? Right. When the president says, talk to my personal lawyer, Mr. Giuliani, we followed his direction. And so that official act of that meeting was being conditioned on the performance of these things the president wanted as expressed both directly and through his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, correct? As expressed through Rudy Giuliani, correct. And you've also testified that your understanding, it became your clear understanding, that the military assistance was also being withheld pending Zelensky announcing these investigations, correct? That was my presumption, my personal presumption based on the facts at the time. Nothing was moving. And in fact, you had a discussion, communication with the Secretary of State in which you said that logjam over aid uh, could be lifted if Zelensky announced these investigations, right? I did not, I don't recall saying the logjam over aid, I recall saying the logjam. I don't that's know what that. You, that's what you meant, right, Ambassador? I, I, I meant that whatever was holding up the meeting, whatever was holding up our deal with Ukraine, I was trying to break. Again, I was presuming. Well, here's what you said in your testimony a moment ago. Okay. Page 18. But my goal at the time was to do what was necessary to get the aid released, to break the logjam. Okay, that's still your testimony, right? Yeah. So, the military aid is also an official act, am I right? 
Yes. This is not President Trump's personal bank account he's writing a check from. This is $400 million of U.S. taxpayer money, is it not? Absolutely. And there was a logjam in which the President would not write that U.S. check, you believed, until Ukraine announced these two investigations the President wanted, correct? That was my belief. Mr. Goldman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In your opening statement, Ambassador Sondland, you, you detailed um, the benefits that you have gained from obtaining some additional documents over the past few weeks. Is that right? Uh, in terms of refreshing my recollection. That's right. Because review, reviewing these documents uh, has helped you to remember the events that we're asking about. Is that correct? Correct. Um, because you acknowledge, of course, that when you can place a document and a date and a context, it helps to jog your memory. That's correct. Um, and so you would agree that for people unlike yourself who take notes, that that is very helpful to their own recollection of events, right? I, I think you asked your question backwards. Are you saying people that take notes, it's helpful to have those documents, or people that don't take notes, it's helpful to have those documents? No, no. <laughs> You are not a note-taker, right? I'm not a note-taker, never have been. But you would agree that people who do take contemporaneous notes uh, generally can, are, are more able to remember things than people who don't? Some, yes. And there are additional documents that you've been unable to obtain, is that right? That's correct. And I think you even said in your opening statement that the State Department prevented you and your staff from trying to gather more documents, is that correct? Certain documents, yes. Which documents? Documents that I didn't have immediate access to. And who at the State Department prevented you from doing that? Uh, you'll have to ask my counsel. He was dealing with them. But certainly based on the uh, additional memory that you have gained over the past few weeks from reading the testimony of others based on their notes and reviewing your own documents, you have remembered a lot more than you did when you were deposed, is that right? That's correct. And one of the things that you now remember is the discussion that you had with, the, with President Trump on July 26th in that restaurant in Kiev, right? Yeah, what triggered my memory was someone's reference to ASAP Rocky, which was, I believe, the primary purpose of the phone call. Certainly, so you, that's one way memory works, isn't it? And you were sitting in a restaurant uh, with David Holmes in Kiev, right, having lunch? Uh, I think I took the whole team out to lunch after the uh, meeting, yeah. And it was a meeting, a one-on-one -on -one meeting you had with Andre Yermak? Uh, again, trying to reconstruct a very busy day without the benefit, but if someone said I had a meeting uh, and I went to the meeting, then I'm not going to dispute that. And particularly if that person took notes at that meeting? Correct or sat outside the door when you didn't let them in? I have no control over who goes into a meeting in Ukraine. That was the Ukrainians that didn't let them in. And you had also met with President Zelensky, among others, that day, is that that's right? Cor that's correct. And you called President Trump from your cell phone from the restaurant, is that right? That's right. And this was not a secure line, was it? No, it was an open line. Did you worry that a foreign government may be listening to your phone call with the President of the United States? Well, I have uh, unclassified conversations all the time from landlines that are unsecured and cell phones. Uh, if the topic is not classified and it's up to the President to decide
what's classified and what's not classified, and we were having, he, he was aware that it was an open line as well. And you don't recall the specifics of holding your phone outside, far away from your ear as Mr. Holmes testified, but you have no reason to question his recollection of that, do you? I mean, it seems a little strange I would hold my phone here. I probably had my phone close to my ear, and he claims to have overheard part of the conversation, and I'm not going to dispute what he did or didn't hear. Well, he also testified that you confirmed to President Trump that you were in Ukraine at the time, and that President Zelensky, quote, loves your ass, unquote. Do you recall saying that? Yeah, it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> That's how President Trump and I communicate, a lot of four-letter words. In this case, three-letter. <laughs> Holmes then said that he heard President Trump ask, quote, is he, meaning Zelensky, going to do the investigation? To which you replied, he's going to do it. And then you added that President Zelensky will do anything that you, meaning President Trump, ask him to. Do you recall that? I probably said something to that effect because I remember the meeting, uh, the president, or President Zelensky was very, um, uh, solicitous is not a good word. He was just very willing to work with the United States and was being very amicable. And so putting it in Trump speak, uh, by saying he loves your ass, he'll do whatever you want, meant that he would really work with us on a whole host of issues. He was not only willing, he was very eager, right? That's fair. Because Ukraine depends on the United States as its most significant ally, isn't that correct? One of its most, absolutely. So, just so we understand, you you were in Kiev the day after President Trump spoke to President Zelensky on the phone. And you now know from reading the call record that in that phone call, he requested a favor for President Zelensky to do investigations related to the Bidens and the 2016 election, right? I do now know that, yes. And you met with President Zelensky and his aides on the day after that phone call. And then you had a conversation with President Trump from your cell phone, from a restaurant terrace, and he asked you whether President Zelensky will do the investigations. And you responded that he's gonna do them, or it, and that President Zelensky will do anything you ask him to do. Is that an accurate recitation of what happened there? I, I, it could have been words to that effect. I don't remember my exact response. But you don't have any reason to dispute Mr. Holmes' recollection, correct? I won't dispute it, but again, I don't recall. After you hung up with the president, Mr. Holmes testified about a conversation that you and he had where he says that you told Mr. Holmes that the president does not care about Ukraine, but the president used the more colorful language, including a four-letter word that you just referenced to. You just referenced. Do you recall saying that to Mr. Holmes? Again, I don't recall my exact words, but clearly the president, beginning on May 23rd, when we met with him in the Oval Office, was not a big fan. But he was a big fan of the investigations. Apparently so. And in fact, Mr. Holmes said that you, that you said that President Trump only cares about the, quote, big stuff 
that benefits himself. Is that something that you would have said at the time? I don't think I would have said that. I would have, I would have honestly said that he was not a big fan of Ukraine and he wants the investigations that we had been talking about for quite some time to move forward. That's what I would have said, because that's the fact. Mr. Holmes also remembers that you told him in giving an example of the big stuff, the Biden investigation that Rudy Giuliani was pushing. Do you recall that? I don't. I recall Burisma, not Biden. And, but do you recall saying, at least refer, referring to an investigation that Rudy Giuliani was pushing? Is that something that you likely would have said? I would have, yes. Now, even if you don't recall specifically mentioning the Biden investigation to David Holmes, we know that it was certainly on President Trump's mind. Because just the day before, in his call with President Zelensky, he mentions specifically the Biden investigation. And I want to show you that exhibit or that excerpt from the call on July 25th, where President Trump says, the other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution, so if you can look into it, it sounds horrible to me. President Zelensky then responds with a reference to the company that he's referring to. And two witnesses yesterday said that when President Zelensky actually said the company, he said Burisma. So you would agree that regardless of whether you knew about the connection to the Bidens, at the very least that you now know that that's what President Trump wanted at the time through the Burisma investigation. I now know it all, of course. And at this time, you were aware of the president's desire, along with Rudy Giuliani, to do these investigations, including the 2016 election interference investigation. Is that right? That's correct. And you said President Trump had directed you to talk, you and a couple, the others, to talk to Rudy Giuliani at the Oval Office on May 23rd. Is that right? If we wanted to get anything done with Ukraine, it was apparent to us we needed to talk to Rudy. Right. You understood that Mr. Giuliani spoke for the president, correct? That's correct. And, in fact, President Trump also made that clear to President Zelensky. In that same July 25th phone call, he said, Mr. Giuliani is highly a highly respected man. He was the mayor of New York City, a great mayor, and I would like him to call you. I will ask him to call you along with the Attorney General. Rudy very much knows what's happening, and he is a very capable guy. And after this, President Trump then mentions Mr. Giuliani twice more in that call. Now, from Mr. Giuliani, by this point, you understood that in order to get that White House meeting that you wanted President Zelensky to have, and that President Zelensky desperately wanted to have, that Ukraine would have to initiate these two investigations. Is that right? Well, they would have to announce that they were going to do it. Right, because Giuliani and President Trump didn't actually care if they did them, right? I never heard, Mr. Goldman, uh, anyone say that the investigations had to start or had to be completed. The only thing I heard from Mr. Giuliani or otherwise 
was that they had to be announced in some form, and that form kept changing. Announced publicly? Announced publicly. And you, of course, recognized that there would be political benefits to a public announcement as opposed to a private confirmation, right? Well, the way it was expressed to me was that the Ukrainians had a long history of committing to things privately and then never following through. So President Trump presumably, again, communicated through Mr. Giuliani, wanted the Ukrainians on record publicly that they were going to do these investigations. That's the reason that was given to me. But you never heard anyone say that they really wanted them to do the investigations, just that hear, they wanted to announce I didn't hear either way. I didn't hear either way. <clears throat> now, your July 26th call with the president was not the only time that you spoke to the president surrounding that Ukraine trip, was it? I believe I spoke to him before his call. And that's, so that would be on July 25th, the day before? Yeah, I think I was flying to Ukraine and I spoke with him, if I recall correctly, just before I got on the plane. So that's two private telephone calls with President Trump in the span of two days, is correct. that right? Correct. You had direct access then to President Trump, correct? I had uh, occasional access when he chose to take my call. Sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. Well, he certainly took your call twice as it related to Ukraine on these two days, is that right? He did. <clears throat> now, the morning of July 25th, you texted Ambassador Volker, and we could bring up the next text exchange, at 7.54 a.m., and you said, call ASAP. Ambassador Volker did not respond to you for another hour and a half, and he said, hi, Gordon, got your message, had a great lunch with Yermak, and then passed your message to him. He will see you tomorrow. Think everything in place. Volker, though, an hour before that, and about a half an hour before the phone call, had texted Andrei Yermak, a top aide for President Zelensky. And he wrote, good lunch, thanks. Heard from White House. Assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate, get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down date for visit to Washington. Good luck, see you tomorrow. Ambassador Sondland, was this message that Kurt Volker passed to Andre Yermak the message you left for Kurt Volker on that voicemail that he referenced? You know, I don't remember, Mr. Goldman, but it very well could have been. You don't have any reason to think it wasn't, right? Again, I honestly, honestly don't remember, but seems logical to me. And if Ambassador Volker testified that he did get that message from you, you have no reason to doubt no, that, No, if right? he testified that he got that message from me, then I would concur with that. So is it fair to say that this message is what you received from President Trump in that phone call that morning? Again, if he testified to that, to refresh my own memory, then yes, likely I would have received that from President Trump. But the sequence certainly makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. You talked to President Trump, yeah. you told Kurt Volker to call you, you left a message for Kurt Volker, Kurt Volker sent this text message to Andre Yermak to prepare President Zelensky, and then you, President Trump had a phone call where President Zelensky spoke very similar to what was in this text message, right? Right. And you would agree that the message in this, that is expressed here is that President Zelensky needs to convince Trump that he will do the investigations in order to nail down the date for a visit to Washington, D.C. Is that correct? That's correct. Now... I'm going to move ahead in time to the end of August and early September when you came to 
believe, I believe, as you testified, that it wasn't just the White House meeting that was contingent on the announcement of these investigations that the President wanted, but security assistance as well. You testified that in the absence of any credible explanation for the hold on security assistance, you came to the conclusion that like the White House visit, the aid was conditioned on the investigations that President Trump wanted. Is that what you said in your opening statement? It is. So let me break this down with you. By this time, you and many top officials knew that that coveted White House meeting for President Zelensky was conditioned on these investigations, right? The announcement of the investigations, correct. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and that includes Secretary Pompeo, right? Many, many people. And Well, Secretary Pompeo? Yes. And Acting Chief of Staff Mulvaney? Yes. And you testified that this was a quid pro quo, is that right? I did. And you, at this point, by the end of August, knew that the aid had been held up for at least six weeks, is that correct? I believe I found out uh, through Ambassador Taylor that the aid had been held up around July 18th is when I, when I heard originally. And even though you searched for reasons, you were never given a credible explanation, is that right? That's right. And no one you spoke to thought that the aid should be held, to your knowledge, is that right? I never heard anyone advocate for holding the aid. And now, by this point, at the end of August, it went public and the Ukrainians knew about it, right? I believe there was some press reports, you know, presuming or who knows, but I think at that point it became sort of common knowledge that everything might be tied together. And in fact, President Zelensky brought it up at that September 1st meeting with Vice President Pence that you were at, right? I don't know if he brought it up specifically uh, but asked where the aid was, I think was more, I think he, he sort of asked, again, very vague recollection, because I don't have a readout of the, of the bilateral meeting, but wh and, why don't I have my check, essentially? And you, you understood the Ukrainians received no credible explanation, is that right? I certainly didn't, couldn't give them one. So, is this kind of a two plus two equals four conclusion that you reached? Pretty much. It's the only logical conclusion to you that, given all of these factors, that the aid was also a part of this quid pro quo? Yep. Now, I want to go back to that conversation that you had with Vice President Pence right before that meeting in Warsaw. And you indicated that you said to him that you were concerned that the delay in the aid was tied to the issue of investigations. Is that right? I don't know exactly what I said to him. This was a briefing attended by many people, and I was invited at the very last minute. I wasn't scheduled to be there. But I think I spoke up at some point late in the meeting and said, it looks like everything is being held up until these statements get made, and that's my you know, personal belief. Um, and Vice President Pence just nodded his head? I, again, I don't recall any exchange or where he asked me any questions. I think he, it was sort of a duly noted well, he didn't say, Gordon, what are you talking about? No, he did not. He didn't say, what investigations? He did not. Now, after this meeting, you discussed this uh, pull aside you had with Mr. Yermak where you relayed your belief that they needed to announce these investigations prior to the aid being released. Is that right? 
I said I didn't know exactly why, but this could be a reason. Um, and obviously you had been speaking with Mr. Yermak for quite a while about a public announcement of these investigations, right? We had all been working on toward that end, yes. And so you indicated to him that in addition to the White House meeting, security aid was now also involved in that. I, uh, as I said, I said it could have been involved, yes. Now, I'm going to show you another text exchange you had on September 1st where Ambassador Taylor says to you, are we now saying that security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? And you respond, call me. Ambassador Taylor recalls that he did call you and you did have a conversation. And in that conversation, you told Ambassador Taylor that the announcement of these investigations by President Zelensky needed to be public and that that announcement was conditioned on, that announcement would ultimately release the, the aid. Do you recall that conversation with Ambassador Taylor? Again, my conversation with Ambassador Taylor, my conversation with Senator Johnson were all my personal belief just based on, as you put it, two plus two equals four. Well, in, that, in his testimony, Ambassador Taylor says that you said that President Trump had told you that he wanted President Zelensky to state publicly as of September 1st. Do you have any reason to doubt Ambassador Taylor's testimony, which he said was based on his meticulous contemporaneous notes? Uh, President Trump never told me directly that the aid was conditioned on the meetings. The only thing we got directly from Giuliani was that the Burisma in 2016 elections were conditioned on the White House meeting. The aid was my own personal, uh, you know, guess based again on your analogy, two plus two equals four. So you didn't talk to President Trump when Ambassador Taylor says that that's what you told him? Is that your testimony here? My testimony is I never heard from President Trump that aid was conditioned on an announcement of elections. So you never heard those specific words? Correct. Right? But I never heard those words. And well, let's move ahead because you have another conversation um, in, in a little bit later that both Tim Morrison and Ambassador Taylor recount. But in this September 1st conversation, Ambassador Taylor also says that testified under oath that you said that President Trump wanted Zelensky in a public box. Do you recall using that expression? Yeah, it goes back to my earlier comment that, again, coming from the Giuliani source, because we didn't discuss this specifically with President Trump, that they wanted whatever commitments Ukraine made to be made publicly so that they would be on the record and be held more accountable, whatever those commitments were. You also testified, or Ambassador Taylor rather, testified that you told him that you had made a mistake in telling the Ukrainians that only the White House meeting was conditioned on the announcement of the investigations and that, in fact, everything was, including the security assistance. Do you now, remember saying that? My, when I referenced a mistake, I, what I recall was I thought that a statement made by the new Ukrainian prosecutor that these investigations would be started up again or commenced would be sufficient to satisfy Mr. Giuliani slash President Trump. As I recall, my mistake was 
someone came back through Volcker otherwise and said, no, it's not going to do if the prosecutor makes these statements. The president wants to hear it from Zelensky directly. That's the mistake I think I made. Do you have any reason to question Ambassador Taylor's testimony based on his meticulous and careful contemporaneous notes? I'm not going to question or not question. I'm just telling you what I believe I, I was, was referring to. Let me fast forward a week and show you another text exchange which may help refresh your recollection. On September 8th, you, had a, a you sent a text to Ambassador Taylor and Ambassador Volker. Can you read what you wrote there? Guys, multiple convos with Zelensky, POTUS, let's talk. And so this was September 8th at 11.20 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And Ambassador Taylor responds immediately, now is fine with me. And if we could go to the next exchange. Ambassador Taylor then 15 minutes later says, Gordon and I just spoke, or 20 minutes later rather, I can brief you if you and Gordon don't connect, speaking to Ambassador Volker. Then Ambassador Taylor an hour later says, the nightmare is they give the interview and don't get the security assistance. The Russians love it, and I quit. You would agree that in this text message, after you had spoken that earlier, an hour earlier, with Ambassador Taylor, that he is linking the security assistance to this interview, this public announcement by President Zelensky. Is that right? Absolutely. And in fact, Ambassador Taylor testified that you did have a conversation with him at that point, and he did and that you told him that, just as your text message indicates, you did have a conversation with President Trump prior to that text message. Does that help to refresh your recollection that you, in fact, spoke to President Trump at that time? Again, I don't recall President Trump ever talking to me about any security assistance, ever. What this tells me, refreshing my memory, is that by the 8th of September, it was, it was abundantly clear to everyone that there was a link uh, and that we were discussing the chicken and egg issue of should the Ukrainians go out on a ledge and make the statement that President Trump wanted them to make and then they still don't get their White House visit and their aid, that would be really bad for our credibility. I think that's what he was referring to. So you do acknowledge you spoke to President Trump as you indicated in that text, right? If I said I did, I did. And that after that conversation, you were still under the impression that the aid was contingent on these public announcements. I did not get that from President Trump, but I was under the impression that absolutely it was contingent. Well, you weren't dissuaded then, right? Because you still thought that the aid was conditioned on the public announcement of the investigations after speaking to President Trump. By September 8th, I was absolutely convinced it was. And President Trump did not dissuade you of that? in the conversation that you acknowledge you had with him? I don't ever recall, because that would have changed my entire calculus. If President Trump had told me directly, I'm not That's not what I'm asking, Ambassador Selling. I'm just saying, you still believed that the security assistance was conditioned on the investigation after you spoke to President Trump, yes or no? From a time frame standpoint, yes. Now, Ambassador Taylor also testified that, and Mr. Morrison, both of them testified, that you told them that President Trump said there was no quid pro quo, which you also included in that text message that you referred. But then you went on and they had slight variations as to what you told them. But then you said that to Ambassador Taylor that President Zelensky himself, not the prosecutor general, needed to clear things up in public or there would be a stalemate. 
And Mr. Morrison recounted something similar. You don't have any reason to doubt that both of their very similar recollections of the conversations they had with you, do you, Ambassador Sondland? Let me break that down, Mr. Goldman. The text, as I said, about the no quid pro quo was my effort to respond to Ambassador Taylor's concerns, to go to President Trump. Apparently, Ambassador Taylor had access to Secretary Pompeo. He did not have access to President Trump. So I made the phone call. I said, what do you want? President Trump responded with what I put in the text. And then I strongly encouraged uh, Ambassador Taylor to take it up with the Secretary. And he responded, I agree, when I said that. Uh, as far as the other part of your question relating to uh, whether or not the prosecutor could make the statement or Zelensky could make the statement, I don't recall who told me, whether it was Volcker, whether it was Giuliani, or whether it was President Trump, it's got to be Zelensky, it can't be the prosecutor. But that's what I relayed. Whoever I got that information from, I relayed that to, I believe, both Mr or excuse me, Ambassador Taylor and to Mr. Morrison. But as of September 9th, you understood, did you not, that President Trump, either himself or through his agents, required that President Zelensky make a public announcement of the two investigations that President Trump cared about in order to get both the White House meeting and to release the security assistance. I is believe, that correct? I believe that is correct. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. That concludes uh, our 45 minutes. I now recognize uh, Mr. Nunes. Oh, okay. Um, why don't we take a five or 10 minute break? Thank you.